Hello and welcome to episode eight of the Buyer's Market Podcast. My name is Nathan Doyle. I am not your regularly scheduled host, but I'm here with him. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. I love the opening. You're, you're setting the bar <laughs> high for me. Trying real hard too. Uh, so today we're falling into our normal rhythm of just taking some time to step back and explore some of the conversations that we've had with our recent guests. Um, we've had Jill and Jason and Dan and Doug, and we're going to have some special stuff coming up next week. But in each of those conversations, we've had an opportunity to explore some really great ideas that we can only kind of touch on in those 45-minute windows. And so our hope with these conversations is to bring some of those topics back to the front uh, and start a conversation between myself and Matthew and just explore kind of the deeper ramifications, the deeper impacts of those ideas in the AEC space and in the marketing space. Um, so today, we want to look at improving outreach, lazy outreach, um, and specifically how the world is changing and how we can change with it to better deliver quality engagement to our audiences. Um, so Matt, I'm going to pass the ball over to you for a little bit. Uh, can you explain to me you know, what some of these lazy outreach strategies look like that you've been experiencing in the field um, and maybe why sales teams tend to lean into those strategies? Yeah. Uh, I. You know, I think it's a just like everything, it's a multifaceted issue why we end up in that spot. So there's a, I think there's broad consensus now that people need to change the way they interact with buyers. They need to change the way they sell. And so people are trying to foray into this space without really doing the due diligence. So they're looking at a marketer and saying, hey, we need to do more online. We need to do more digitally. We need to interact with our customers in a digital manner. And so when you just pass the baton like that to someone that hasn't sold before, that doesn't have that experience, then they do what they know. And so in my experience, what that's led to is a lot of people that are trying to meet quotas and numbers and they're trying to do that by just reaching out to as many people as they can so i'm sure everyone who's listening to this has been a part of a drip campaign where they sign up for a form or they try and download an asset and then they're peppered with emails so that's one form of poor outreach uh, another one that i would say is even worse is poor targeting where uh, i'll give you an example of you know my linkedin profile is demand generation and then it's also business owners so i get martech vendors trying to reach out to me for demand generation stuff and then i have people reaching out to me because i have business owner in my title and the people that are reaching out on the demand generations for that title they are very aggressive with what they're trying to sell very little context for what i do or for what the company does it's just Hey, why don't you take a look at this? Hey, why don't you jump on a call with me? Hey, why don't you do this for me? Even though there's no context for your company, there's no context for who you are and everybody's busy. And I know I'm not unique in that sense. You just don't have time for that. Um, the next one I would say is on the business owner side, you can tell just how poorly these people are targeting because they're targeting me, a business owner of a marketing agency with marketing services. They're trying to sell, they're trying to improve my small business's marketing. And so it's like, hey, if you do even just a touch of due diligence, you're going to realize that I'm not the right candidate for that. My business is actually a marketing agency. Right. So I experience a lot of stuff like that just through my personal experiences, but then you talk to people and you kind of hear the same thing. You heard Jill talk about it. She's getting reached out for things that she that's not even remotely within her purview. And so if you're off, if you're off that far, that's really bad. But if you're off even slightly and you're not contextual and you're not adding value to the buyer, that can create a negative brand awareness where they know you, they recognize you, but it's for your poor outreach. And that's building negative sentiment. 
Sure, sure. Um, I, I think one of my favorite conversations we've had over the past seven episodes leading to this um, was that little bit towards the end of our conversation with Doug, where we talked about like, hey, I don't have a lot of time. So this is, if you want to get my attention, this is how you get my attention and build a really, really catered deck and build something really, really specific to his audience. Um, and I think there's there's an interesting point in that and just being realistic and understanding the needs and the interests and the limitations of the people that you're trying to sell to. Like, Doug's a great example of someone with not a lot of time. Um, and so every 15 minutes you can get is really, really valuable and you have to make those 15 minutes count. Um, for our, our sales guys at home and women as well, sales folks at home, uh, how can they kind of refine their efforts to target those more specifically, uh, to improve their targeting, to make the most impact of them with little time they get? Uh, you know, I would say it's sales getting more involved in marketing and marketing getting more involved in sales. I know that there are, and, and they are two di completely different worlds, but marketing, if you think of marketing, it's one to many. If you think of sales, it's one to one. But in this digital revolution, you can do a lot more of one to one or one to a few through your marketing. And so if sales spent more time with marketing, communicating with them, hey, here's what we're hearing from customers. Here's their pain points. Here's their issues. Here's what we get asked about a lot. Here's what they don't care about and work with the marketing team to develop good content. And that means you really getting engaged and, and it, helping the marketing team understand the parts of the business they don't, help them get more contextualized and help them understand the different types of personalities and buyers you're seeing so they can start to create content tailored to them. And then it's all about execution, measurement and reporting and improving, right? That's a, mm -hmm. a staple of any good business, but that's an important piece of it because you know, we've been a part of it. There's a lot of debates that happen in rooms about a sentence, a paragraph, a word, a comma. And the reality is the people in the room probably don't have the answer either, but you know who does? Your prospective customers. And through digital interactions, you can measure what they respond to and what they actually want to consume. And if you pay attention to that, it's an iterative process that will continue to get better and better. So you're, you're, you're broaching into an interesting space here when it gets into the conversation of like sales and marketing alignment, making sure both teams are kind of working together in the same space as opposed to kind of butting heads. Um, and I know like I have a, a long background on the marketing side and you're on the sales side there. So I think there's an interesting space here of why do those two teams fight as much as they do? I have my answer, but I'm curious to what yours is and I'll go from there. I am I am very curious to hear your answer because my I'm going to focus mostly in the AEC space. I have a different right. opinion outside of that. Um, in the AEC space, marketing has was an afterthought for a long time. Marketing was mainly proposals, and so sales was always the lead. It, marketing was never the lead. It was always sales that was the lead, and sales has viewed marketing all the time as events and proposals for. I'm for a very, very long time and until very recently. So in the last call it five to 10 years, that started to flip a little bit in the AC space. And you've seen sales, if you're out in the field, you're experiencing that customers don't know things that you think they should know about you. And they're talking to somebody else before they talking to you when you think you have a better product or a better service. And so then when you start to talk to those customers and understand what informed their decision, it's I was doing online research. I, oh, I knew them about them from this. This person recommended them. All that stuff that's happening online. And so sales is saying, what the heck, marketing? Why are they beating us in marketing when I know that we can beat them in sales? You need to do your job better, which is an unfair ask in a lot of instances too, because up until five to 10 years ago, your job was events and proposals. Now all of a sudden you have to be, you're in charge of in 
integral communications, not just high level technical communications with customers. And so I think there's a misalignment from the top that sales and marketing end up being caught in the middle of it, where you have sales folks that are saying we're not doing enough and you're saying marketing folks saying we don't know what to do. Yeah, and I would I would lean into that uh, a little bit from my experience as well. There's that that competing tension of, hey, no, we gave you the lead. You didn't close the deal, but you didn't qualify the lead. You gave me a bad lead. And there's that kind of like blame game that goes back and forth there. There's the like the ongoing fight for data. Um, I think it's always an interesting tension there. Um, and the the hesitancy for even teams within the org the same organization to just share information with each other um, and to kind of share those insights and the the games that kind of get tied up into that um, and I think you kind of touched on it where the sales is the lead and marketing is the back end and like as a Royals fan living in Missouri this is my relationship with the Cardinals like there's that big brother oh hey we're an afterthought in the greater organization thing well great i don't I'm, I'm not gonna play games with that so like there's this weird tension of like, almost resentment at times and i hesitate to call that say that as a marketer because i don't want to sound like we're a bunch of petty kids um but there's a very real um space where marketing seems like an afterthought in a lot of spaces when it absolutely should be the driving force for a lot of growth yeah, and I, I agree with that. And I think that's the evolution of the AEC space, right? Where they aren't there yet. And it's I I was hoping you were actually going to say that point about misalignment with the leads and actual driving to opportunities to turn into revenue. And we see it in other spaces that we work in where that is the issue, where marketing is marketing is ultimately judged on the amount of leads that they bring in. And so they're going to optimize for leads. Sales is judged on the amount of revenue they book or the amount of um or the amount of backlog that they generate. And so they're keenly focused on that. And so I think that this is a, 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 a neat place to be in the AC space where we haven't gone through that trap yet, but you can already see companies are starting to go to things that have already been proved not to work in more advanced technological spaces. And that lead handoff is a big thing. And I think that's an opportunity for companies that are foraying into this and trying to figure out how to do it is to not fall into that trap. You need yeah. sales and marketing alignment. You can't have disjointedness where you're optimizing for different things. You need to be optimizing for revenue all the way through. And if you can get marketing to understand marketing source revenue and how that works with sales and get them aligned and on the same team, you can solve a lot of those problems before they become real problems like we're seeing in B2B SaaS. Yeah, the the thing that I always like to to lean into when it comes to trying to understand that that offering that kind of marketing driven approach is it's it's a sales it's an old sales move of just understanding the pain points of your audience, um, understanding the problems that they experience every day, um, and helping resolve those issues. Um, it's, it's the the rhythm of stepping in, adding value, building trust, building trust for trust's sake, and then extending that into a long-term fruitful symbiotic relationship. You want to be able to, to show up and prove that you are who you say you are before any money's exchanged in hands, before you've done any work, um, and have that confidence in the relationship that you built so that by the time they need the services that you provide, you've already done the legwork. There's not a whole lot of second guessing left to do. They trust that you are who you are, that you're going to do what you do, and you're able to deliver on that. And you hit on another great point. That This is the thing I never understand 
I see companies do things digitally that they would never do in person. You would never go into a meeting and just talk about yourself the entire time. You would never go into a meeting and talk about things that aren't relevant to that specific customer or to their in, in their um, industry. But for some reason, when it comes to digital, it's like, hey, let's throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. And that's how you end up in those situations where we described earlier, where it's negative brand sentiment because of that. Yeah, it's I don't want to focus too much on proposals here, but like think about any proposal you've ever given the, the the structure is hey here's the problem that you have here's how we're uniquely equipped to solve it here's what the details look like um, yeah and i i think the best marketing especially in the digital space the best marketing outreach that i've seen really leans into the like here's the problem here's how we solve it structure that we just described yeah and and I would argue, and I, uh, I want to put a pin in the proposals thing. We're gonna ha we'll have another episode to talk about that because I want to jam on just the why marketing and proposals are aligned in the AEC space <laughs> and how I completely disagree with that. <laughs> uh, but I think but I think you hit on a good point there. Um, oh, I lost my spot. <laughs> and Rick, twenty five seventeen. God damn! Why did I say the Pin and proposals. I had such a good freaking <laughs> thing for that. Oh, okay, okay. Twenty-five seventeen. You're probably gonna have to cut all that. Uh, I'm trying to think of exactly what you what you said. Uh, all right, I think I'm I think I'm good. Okay. Twenty mark down whenever I start talking. That's a good point. I want to I want to put a pin in the proposals thing and come back to that. But you you hit on a good point about um, you're identifying the problem and helping them solve it. And I think that that even is, you know, that's where I think people are are at now in the buying process. That's where they're trying to solve for if you're doing it well. But I also think there's an opportunity to go even further back. I know we're going to talk about that in a second, but on the education side, you've heard from multiple people that have changed jobs. And how do they learn about that new job? It's been through online research. They familiarize with themselves. Every single person we've talked to has done that. And so you see people that are doing things that are they're just talk. Some people's content is just talking about themselves. Other people are doing it a little bit better where they're trying to identify the problem and how you solve it. And the people that are really doing it well, they're creating content that helps inform the customer when they're informing themselves about the market. And it's difficult to do that because you have to do it in a very buyer centric way. If you come across as trying to peddle your own stuff, it's going to be it's going to be obvious to, to customers and they're not gonna view you as trusted. But if you can genuinely get that content out there and you can create that content for your potential customers and inform them in the marketplace, you're in a completely different standing than you are, even if you're doing the good things and describing the problem and the solution. Right, right. So looking at that in a, in a space where we're trying to kind of identify that value and identify those problems, like um, why are sales teams finally or suddenly kind of finding themselves in a spot where they have to do that legwork, where they're working with a more educated audience or trying to engage with an audience that might have better access than, than before. I, the proliferation of information is, is the big reason. It's not any, trust me, OEMs and, and companies, they don't want it to be like that. The customers are the ones that want it to be like that. Just like you as a consumer, you want more access to information. Um, and so I think companies have been forced to do that because customers do have access to information. I used to work for a large OEM in the power generation space. 
And that was one of the big things is you had all the technology, you had all the drawings, you didn't give those out. You basically had to pay a consultant to be able to get that. And even back then, what you saw is customers that were trying to steal drawings to be able to get the information. And they would find unique ways to get it, even when it wasn't there. And as soon as a competitor got that, they would reverse engineer it, and then you'd be in a bad spot anyways. Um, and I saw that being done not only with the very technical things like measurements, degrees of the boiler, but also with just the general conceptual information of how to operate your unit well, um, best practices for running a mill. These things that if you're an operator, you would expect to just have access to that information. And in the old guard, it was, no, we're going to guard that information. You're going to pay us to come sit in a class and tell us we can tell you these things. And then that's your only avenue. And now that's been flipped on its head where you know, if you want to learn about a boiler, you can just go on YouTube and it doesn't need to be the boiler OEM that's explaining it to you. There's five other ones that will do it. And there's some guy in his basement who, guess what? He's actually a PhD who knows this stuff too, and he's making content. So now they can learn it that way. And so that proliferation of information has has caught a lot of people that weren't expecting it off guard. And yeah, the I think there's a couple of interesting things that I want to unpack there, but my starting with from a marketing strategist approach like my stance is always give away everything that you possibly can for free and then sell the thing that you actually sell so for an oem that that manufactures a boiler like give them the class give them all that information that they're going to get from the phd in this basement so they come to you and trust you and not dr boiler or whatever whatever his, yeah. his name would be um <laughs> and by the time it gets to, oh, hey, we need someone to install and operate a boiler, then you have a P3 contract lined up right there because they already trust who you are and what you're doing and where you're going. Um, other interesting thing I wanted to pull out from there, completely escaped my mind. I completely went blank on what I was about to say there. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, Bo's earning his money on this one. That was 29 something. Was it? Um, you're talking about boiler proliferation of learning what where was my brain going um proliferation of information access to information sales of them but through um okay sorry i can work with that um and three two one the other thing i thought was really interesting about that is that when you focus on giving that information away, focus on answering those questions, and that gives you really great opportunities to build a digital strategy and create really dynamic content that, again, builds that trust and demonstrates that value. Uh, as a buyer, as a person that's kind of working with sales teams, how does, from your experience, that quality content that's answering those questions help shape that proliferation of information? Um, I haven't seen it done really well in our space, to be honest with you. I see people that are making attempts at it. So I, what I see is a lot of customers going to whatever resource they can find to find this information and getting as far along on the customer journey as they can with the information that's out there and then making decisions based on who's whose content they're consuming. Um, you know, we, we've, we've heard it a little bit from previous guests too, where, uh, you know, Jill talked about the, um, not using studies. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know if a lot of people realize that how McKinsey, Boston, all these people that make these 
surveys all these uh, reports, a lot of times they're paid by companies to generate those reports. And mm -hmm. so if companies are doing it well, they will be able to take the place of a McKinsey and provide that information to their customers. But I haven't seen that. And so I'm reluctant to say how it really affects how that's really affected everyone, because I feel like it's uh, it's just at the beginning of really starting to take hold now, especially yeah, in these dude. power generation, these new markets where people are going from, hey, I used to work at a gas plant. Now I'm going to be operating a wind farm or I'm going to be doing offshore wind. There's a lot of that those changes happening and those people have to learn about this new market in different ways. Yeah, there's a, a lot of opportunity there to, I guess, kind of like rebuild the traditional sales funnel. Um, like the way that I'm thinking about it is, I feel like there's a real gap in the AEC space when it comes to marketing content, when it comes to educational content, beyond like the awareness stage, there's the, hey, we exist stuff. Um, and that, that kind of ties back into what we were talking about earlier, but there's not a lot of the like, hey, um, let's, let's consider these offerings that we have. Hey, this is what we do. This is how you can learn about the services that we provide and how it ties into your pain points, into your needs. Um, there's not a lot of stuff that's built around converting and really, really like closing those deals. It's, hey, it's either super technical information um, and, and traditional white papers, um, or it's, hey, we just built this project in South America or in Toledo or wherever. Mm -hmm. um, and so like being able to step in and fill those gaps in ways that is interesting or entertaining or engaging or challenging even, uh, pushing back against the existing status quo and saying, hey, this thing is broken and here's how we can do it better, um, creates a lot of opportunity for people to sink their teeth in a little bit more and for organizations to get people's attention, uh, which I'm very intrigued to see how that evolves with, with the next couple of years. Yeah, and I, I think the big thing in this space, and um, we're already starting to experience a little bit is you can't, before it was, you could just get someone's attention, right? Because there weren't a lot of people in this space creating content. After the pandemic hit, everybody is producing content, some form or fashion. So now it's becoming, and you've seen it in LinkedIn algorithms. If you get on, if you follow the algorithms at all, or you follow people that follow the algorithms, there's been a huge hit to reach for organic content. And that is because there's a lot more content being produced on LinkedIn, so they can prioritize the good content. And that's going to continue to happen more and more and more where, you know, people that are just making content to make content, it's not going to cut, it's not going to cut the mustard anymore. Yeah, that's, that's, I think it's interesting you brought up the LinkedIn algorithm because the way that that, that particular one plays is such a, a value driven offering. You have to play the game to, to get the promotion, but you also need to say something interesting you need to to be able to grab that attention and keep people on the page because i mean that's what the the platform's built for it's built to keep people scrolling and keep people clicking and the more you can differentiate yourself and the more you can catch people's attention with with whatever digital content you're creating the more time you're going to spend the more time you're going to click and the more that the algorithm is going to reward you for what you're doing yeah and um and you know, you you were talking. We were talking a little bit earlier about the good content piece, right? And what does that look like? And it's amazing to me. In a, in such a, a science technical based industry, they do not believe in psychology. People will argue with me time and time again that this stuff doesn't work or that doesn't work like this. 
it's not like Matthew Winkelstein is a genius. I've spent a lot of time studying psychology. And when you look at what these platforms are based off of, they're based off human psychology, things that happen that in your conscious and subconscious. And so if you can buy into that, which it's, it, once again, don't believe me, do your own research. But if you can buy into that, then you can start to understand how to create good content. There's a couple things that just high level stories. People remember stories. Uh, I have a little stat that I have wrote down somewhere. How many people have memorized all the lines of Hamlet versus how many people have memorized the longest shred of pie? And it's an exponentially more people have memorized that many lines of Hamlet versus how many people have memorized that many lines of pie, because it's much more difficult to remember random pieces of information than it is to remember information that's contextual. So if you tell stories, if you tell stories well, you can get that information out. You can do it in a memorable way. And that's uh, that's one thing. The second thing is people. As much as we're in business to business and people, companies buy from companies, people buy from people. And I don't understand why why that is missed on a lot of organizations. There's a lot of focus on the company channel, which is good because you need to do something on the company channel. But if they don't know the people that are inside that organization, it's just a brand on social media. But if you start to connect the talented people in your organization with that brand narrative from your company page, that's a good way that you can start to tell good stories and also introduce the people that your customers would work with to each other in a digital way. Then you take that offline and that's how you start to really develop a good strategy, good content strategy. Well, what I think is really interesting about that is the the data-driven portion and the, the narrative-driven portion. That's very marketing. That's very new school. Hey, that, that's optimized and that's tinker and that's pull all of these impulses in and frame that in a way that aligns with kind of that traditional hero's journey stuff that we've kind of talked about in the past. Whereas the people to people is very old school sales. Um, and I think we should absolutely in the future do an entire episode on that instinct versus data dynamic when it comes to sales and engagement. But that circles back to the sales and marketing alignment conversation that we've been having and how you balance a digital first engagement strategy with relationally driven sales and building those building that dynamic between you and your customer in a way that is authentic and trusted and sustainable. Um, it's not just built on a bunch of crap that is kind of flimsy and kind of hokey and well, no one really has a lot of faith in. Yeah, and, and I would say uh, to add to your point, the digital first approach, it's not it's not that we think a digital first approach is the right approach because it's digital. It's because more customers are buying that way. If all of a sudden customers bought off postcards, we would want to try and understand how postcards work. But that's not where buyers are right now. That's not where people are consuming information. And so when you talk about a digital first approach, it really is a customer first approach. And especially in this space, you're definitely going to have buyers that don't consume content online. So you need both, especially right now. But as time goes on, that pendulum is going to continue to swing the other way and more and more and more customers are going to consume the stuff online. And so a digital first approach is a customer first approach. And if you continue to think that way, how does the customer consume information? How do they buy? What, what information do they need? When do they need it? How can they communicate with the easiest? If you start to optimize around that, that will evolve over time for whatever platform, whatever digital technology, whatever 3D technology, or uh, whatever technology comes in the future that I don't know about is on the way, you'll be optimized for that because you're, you'll move with your customer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's an interesting element of just like 
adapting to change, um, and adapting to change that was forced upon you um, in how that and how all that works. You either dig your heels in and say, no, this is the way we've always done it, and this is the way we're going to continue to do it, or you can give a little bit, and you can roll with the punches and not take that jab to the gut and just keep kind of adapting and growing and learning. Um, I, I want to kind of circle back to what you're talking about, about content creation in the pandemic. Uh, so today we are just a few days removed of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, I, was, I was 11 years old, so it's, it's, it's you know, 13, I was 13, it's a lifetime ago. Um, and yet it still feels very, very fresh. And I think about how the world has evolved in the 20 years since, um, and specifically like how that day kind of sparked a lot of drastic immediate change that is still being felt, whether it's in how we communicate with people or civil policy, governmental policy, um, getting on an airplane, um, even just like the way that we kind of view the world uh, was very, very drastically rewritten in an instant. Um, and we've all gone and adapted to that um, and created a, a new rhythm and a new normal in in the wake of that event. Now, 20 years later, we're kind of doing the same thing again, doing this process of recreating a new normal in the wake of a terrible period in our history. Um, and so I'm curious to see from your experience how that that transition and that that redefining of a culture and a um, communication process and a perspective ties into the AEC space and how the the ramifications of what we've been rebuilding um, how you expect those to continue to vibrate out through the, the coming months and years. Yeah, I. Um... I was uh, 16 or 15 or 16 when 9-11 happened. And so I'm also a little bit removed from it, um, but not that removed from it. I remember, I can remember still being in, in school and walking by the library and someone saying a plane flew into the World Trade Center. And I remember a couple of my friends and I joking about like, what kind of idiot would fly into the World Trade Center? I think it was like the week or a couple of weeks before they'd had some, uh, an ABA, someone had done that on a private plane not necessarily in the building, but close or something to that nature. And so we thought it was kind of a joke for a period of class. And then you get out and all of a sudden you see what's happening. And um, to your point, the the world hasn't been the same for uh, for people that were adults during that time, let alone for people that were kids during that time or in high school. Um, and that's been no more evident than when you listen to Doug talk about how 9-11 spurred him to go into the military and how that completely altered the trajectory of his career and who he is and what he does today. Um, you listen to Jill. Jill was a flight attendant when 9-11 hit. And now she's a sales consultant and she's held, held executive roles in supply chain. So that really changed her career. And so I think you have the individuals that are going to be changed and there's going to be changes in people's career. There's going to be changes in the way they perceive the world and the way they perceive a lot of things because of what's happened. Um, you know, I think a lot about it with taking people out to dinner. You know, I think people are going to be even more reluctant to go to dinner now, not necessarily because they're scared of the virus, because I think we all value home a little bit more than we did before. And so do I really want to go have that dinner? Or would I rather spend that time with my family when I have a kid that's at home? Or would I rather go spend time with my neighbor? Or would I rather go spend time with a sales rep at dinner? And so I think that there's those 
reverberations that continue to happen from what's happened during the pandemic that will continue to, to progress just like what happened in 9-11. And again, a good point where we've viewed the world differently. We got on airplanes differently. You know, I, I bet if you would have talked to people then or a year later, they would have said, OK, you know, these are the this, these are the changes that occurred because of 9-11. But to your point, changes continue to occur at the airports. And now you look at it and you can't go to a, a sporting event without going through very similar security that you go through an airport. I bet there weren't a lot of people that were predicting that in you know, in uh, when 9-11 originally happened or even in 2004, probably a couple years later, they probably weren't thinking about that. But those those things did happen. And so now looking at the pandemic, there's a lot of people that are when we get back to normal, when we get back to normal. We've been hearing that for 18 months now. This is the new normal. There are definitely things that will hopefully go away as more people get vaccinated, as more people feel comfortable getting out in public. But I don't I think it's a, a fool's errand to think we're ever going to go back to the way it was previously. I don't think people are going to want to work more now. I don't think that people are going to want to spend more time away from their families now. I don't think that people are going to want to travel more now. Uh, all these things are going to lead to changes in buyer behavior, where if you're not meeting with people as much, not meeting with vendors as much, where are you getting your information? How are you learning about technologies? How are you learning about what's out there? You've got to do it somehow. And so our assumption is that's going to happen more online, and we've, we've seen that play out. So that's that's one thing. Uh, we've talked a little bit, uh, you know, I talked about it with Jill, where uh, the days where you just show up and take a take a customer out to lunch, I think that those days are gone too. Uh, if you have a relationship, I think that's going to happen. But almost everyone we've talked to has some form of remote work in place. Uh, and if they don't now, I'm hearing more and more companies that are moving that way because of talent is going to where flexible work is. And so if you think that the big customers are going to have flexible work, how are you going to talk to them if you're using those same outreach methods that you used before? Because like we talked, it's not going back. It's not definitely not going back to exactly the way it was. And I don't pretend to be a genius and know what all the ramifications are going to be from a pandemic. It's my first pandemic, too. But we can all look at history and see how things have changed and how some things went back, but some things don't. And I think that it's important for companies and individuals to take stock and examine, you know, what what are old behaviors and old strategies and old tendencies that I was executing previously that worked that now if I started from zero, maybe this is not the way I would do it or maybe it wouldn't work this way. And for people that were successful, I think that's a scary proposition, but it's a necessary one. Yeah, there's the the old adage of like, if you're not growing, you're dying. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's really, really real to kind of the conversations that we're having now. And, and, and I think we tend to lean into growth as financial growth. Um, and that's that's obviously like a huge driver for any successful organization, but there's also growth of your mindset, growth of your organization, growth of your individuals, um, and being able to adapt so that you don't end up like Kodak or Blockbuster or any of those other organizations that were institutions for years that couldn't pivot and couldn't adapt and couldn't grow and died out. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, you can you can see large companies being impacted by this. I mean, you look at the look at the consumer space. I we go there a lot because they are ahead of us, right? If you consume the B two C space is significantly further ahead than the B two B space. The B two B SaaS space is ahead of B two B professional services space. Is kind of the way the way that we view it. Um, the consumer space is just is rapidly changing. 
and you see new brands of new brand of drink or a new brand of potatoes. How could anyone beat Coca-Cola or Pepsi? You know, 20 years ago, how could anyone do that? Now there's a new drink that pops up all the time. Look at clothing. I the uh, the athletic stuff that I wear now, I used to wear Nike stuff. Now I wear this company called Vori. It's like they started out as just joggers a year and a half ago. Now listen, they have all this other stuff. And it's like, who's gonna beat Nike? Well, it's not one person that's gonna beat any of these companies. It's death by a thousand cuts. There's all these small, more nimble companies that are gonna reach customers in a different way, gonna be more customer centric, and it's gonna chip away at the big guy, continue to chip away. And just to your point, fun. yeah, it's 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 a slow, painful death. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've been a part of a company that's fledgling, and it is tough. <laughs> and just to be crystal clear, none of the brands you just mentioned are sponsored or any way endorsing this show. <laughs> oh, Matt, we're, we're coming up at the top of our time. Uh, anything else you want to touch on? Anything else that we didn't discuss as far as outreach and the evolution of the market? and the new normal uh, that you think our listeners uh, would benefit from before you wrap up for today. No, I think we, I think we covered, a, I think we covered a lot on this. I hope, uh, I hope people are gaining value from it. Um, I'd, I'd encourage people the last time, if you, if you have stuff you want us to talk about, please let us know. Uh, we generate a lot of these content ideas from different customers we talk to and people that ask us questions. So by all means, please let us know about things you want to talk about. And if you're interested in talking about the way that you can, talk to customers better, the way you can reach them better digitally, please feel free to reach out to me directly on LinkedIn or reach out through engagingperspectives.com. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you. We'll do this again soon. Um, Tune in next week. We have, uh, what's Casey's last name? We'll cut that and jump back in. (laughs) Uh, Casey Fallon, Casey Fallon. Okay. Uh, But we don't know if it's going to be before Jason or- Uh, That's true. Think of like our thing is like no one actually knows when these are recorded, and I like to keep it yep. that way. So yeah. got it, got it, got it. Cool, I, cool. Wanted, I wanted to be wearing a long sleeve shirt today, but I was like, okay, I'm gonna wear a short sleeve shirt because I later when I meet with John, be wearing a long sleeve shirt that's fucking full of my basement. <laughs> <laughs> that works. Okay. So. All right, with that, that is episode eight of the Buyer's Market Podcast. Thank you again, everyone, for your time and your listening. Uh, I encourage you to give us a five star review on. I or an Apple I or the Apple. Blah, 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 blah. That was episode eight of the engagement. That was episode <laughs> eight of the Buyer's Market podcast. Uh, thank you again for listening. We encourage you to leave a comment and a five-star review on the iTunes store. Uh, you can find us on Spotify and just about anywhere else that podcasts are distributed. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. If you like this, please share it with a friend. We we want we want to reach as many people as we can. So if you truly enjoy it please share it. And if you don't like it at all, please let us know so we can get better.